0: Thank you for each one that's here. Thank you that some have uh, been sick for a while and are back. Uh, We pray that these numbers in the coming weeks would double and triple and get us back to normal and allow us to interact personally, uh, individually, to see people face to face and to find out how they're doing. But we thank you for this time. We don't take it for granted. Uh, We know church is not being at home watching it on TV, but it's It's a great second alternative when you can't do otherwise. Uh, So help us, Father, to come back together and to um, look to you to take care of all of our needs. We just thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I feel like it's been a month. um, And for some of you it has, right? You feel like it really has been a month. But as we looked uh, at uh, Habakkuk a little bit ago, uh, two, three weeks ago, We saw a couple sections here in chapter 1, Habakkuk accused God of not dealing with the sins of Judah. You ever complain about the sins of people around you? How how they drive, um, how they treat your family, Um, maybe it's your neighbor and you're loving them, but they don't always act nicely, Um, but there's a lot of opportunities for us to deal with the sins of those around us. And Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, and as a very intelligent man, we shared that in the beginning. This book is written of a higher level of Hebrew and how it's been put together. You can tell this, this man was trained and um, knowledgeable, and yet he's coming along with all that knowledge, and sometimes it gets in your way as he's given this oracle from God, this, this burden to bear, this information he's sharing and passing on. And he's trying to explain to them... <coughs> that God is not paying attention, that Judah needs to be straightened out. And so God answers him. He takes Judah's complaint of injustice in chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, and he explains to Habakkuk that he was doing something about it. Isn't God always doing something about it? Why is Habakkuk complaining? Well, he doesn't want what's coming, but he thinks God isn't even dealing with sin. He deals with sin in our lives. If you're a believer, you get spanked. If, if you're an unbeliever, there's a lot of things that you allow allowed to get away with because you're not God's child, and he doesn't interact on that level. We need to know him. But don't think you're going to get away with something when you're God's child and you decide to bring sin into your life. And so is looking at this whole thing. He's looking at the nation of Judah, and the question is, how many of them really were righteous? Small number. Same thing we've said about America today. How many real believers are there in our country? And it's a small number. I don't care how many people are going to church and nowadays not going to church and finding other alternatives, but what's fascinating to me is when they don't go to church, they stop reading their Bibles, they stop sharing the gospel, they stop praying, they, they stop letting, letting go of a lot of things because it isn't a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as they struggled with this, back explained kind of expecting God to do something with Judah because Judah's his precious little child, the children of Israel. And so he complains and God says, i are doing something about it. And here it is. He explains to them, I'm going to send the Chaldeans. And he goes from this injustice in one to four with this feeling of that. That's incredible. God, that, that is unbelievable that you would do that. Do you know who the Chaldeans are? God, Well, if God doesn't know about the injustice in Judah and he isn't dealing with their sin, why would he even pay attention to the Chaldeans? Habakkuk, you've got to get your story straight here. Either God should be doing something because he knows everything and he doesn't like sin, or God is purposely choosing a group of people that he's going to use to discipline his own. And so the message today, chapter 1, 12, through verse 1 of chapter 2, is a new challenge from Habakkuk and basically says to God, you can't do that. You ever done that? You ever felt so sick? Maybe in recent weeks. It's good. God, what are you doing to me? You, you can't make this worse. Next day worse. Wait a minute. Something's got to something's give here, God. This isn't how you work. This isn't how things go. And the, the fact that we're still alive is amazing to me. Adam and Eve, the moment they sin defied God's direct command of them, should have been squashed like bugs. God could have started over. And in giving man a free will starting over, what do you think would have happened? Where'd the devil go? Nowhere. Were they going to be put back in the same garden with the same tree of knowledge of good and evil and and, and all of the the struggles that were there? They would have been in the same boat and the same Satan attempting them in the same way. They were perfect. They didn't have a sin nature. They weren't drawn into that in any particular way, except for the fact that they were curious, starting with Eve. So here you have Judah being curious with sin. And so we look at verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, and again, as um, he presents these in the New American Standard, they leave it with the Old English. I, I wouldn't do that, but I'll read what's there. I don't see a need, but it, it helps to separate some things at times, explain who's talking to whom. But here he says, Art thou, now we know he's talking to God, not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. We will not die. Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, has established them to correct. Right? Kind of bringing this up, and he's reminding God of his authority. And the fact here in the first part is that God is self-existent. Art thou not from everlasting he uses an interesting term here art thou not from of old and he's bringing out the contrast remember verse 11 two weeks ago Habakkuk 111 then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on but they will be held guilty those whose strength is their God what's going to happen to their God the God of the Chaldeans the Babylonian going to perish. It's temporary. He says there, will they not be held guilty? That they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. It'll come and go. But God, and he brings in verse 12, he says, are you not from everlasting? You're not like their God, their military might that they worship. Many countries do that today. Many communist countries do that. And China's one of them. They worship the God of their own strength. Is God going to use China to discipline his people? You don't even want to bring it up, right? You don't want to remind God or give him the idea, like he needs ideas from us. But here he's trying to tell him, you're from everlasting, God. He's bringing out the idea that you're eternal. You're faithful. You're in contrast to this temporary Chaldean strength as their God. You are derived from ancient times, ancient days, unchanging, immutable, faithful. He's he's reminding God of who He is. Hello, God. Just in case you forgot, this is who you are. And I'm going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to claim that attribute of yours to make you do what I want you to do. So he refers to him from everlasting and gives him his key name, O Lord, using the term Yahweh. I am who I am. He's kind of bringing out that idea that God is eternal. But with that comes the picture there in in Exodus 3 with Moses. He's the covenant-keeping God. What I said, I will do. What I promised, I will fulfill. What I've given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, I'll follow through on. And this is what what, um, Habakkuk is trying to bring up to God. That's who you are. You can't wipe out Judah. Did God say he was going to wipe out Judah? Remember we brought it up a couple weeks ago that God is not punishing Israel and taking them out of the way. He's chastising Israel. And there's a big difference between the two. It's discipline. It is not execution. Does he do that in your life? Does he use things like Is that a possibility? Don't don't you learn things when you're in a position like that that you don't learn any other way? When God lays you on your back and stops you from being able to do normal activities? Get your attention. And our natural response is to cry out to him and say, Thank you. Don't we not? No, we don't. We're in the perspective, say, God, I'm on the sideline. You're your favorite person minister, your favorite servant, your favorite worker in the church is not there. It can't go on. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Habakkuk thinks that God needs to do the right things for Habakkuk's sake and for Judah's sake, but God does the right things for God's sake. And he uses a wide variety of, of things in our lives, including the fact that he postpones our death. We get so upset when a child dies. I remember doing the, the memorial of a, of a one-and-a-half-year-old child one time. What do you say? How do you comfort people with that? It was very difficult. And it was early on. It was back in the 80s here in Lafayette. And you kind of ask the question, God, why? Well, how old's old enough? If they reach 20, is that okay? No. If they reach 80, is that okay? Well, what what is it that we're struggling with? God, you're letting people die. What do you tell Adam and Eve? Eat it, you die. They instantly died spiritually, they eventually died physically. They watched the process, they, they watched all of the things kick in that, that happened right away, and the first thing that kicked in was they were embarrassed. They were hiding, they felt guilt from the very one who they knew they had violated. And it's what we do when we struggle with sin. It's what Habakkuk is trying to get God's attention with. He says, you're the God who doesn't do those kind of things. You're the God who is I am who I am. You are the next term, my God, my Elohim, my sovereign creator, my, the God Almighty, the one who's all powerful. That's who you are. You could snap your fingers and COVID would disappear off planet Earth. You could snap your fingers and war would be gone. Guess what? That day's coming. It's coming when Jesus Christ returns. But when He returns, He's bringing with Him judgment. Why would I wish for Him to hurry up and wipe out unbelievers and send them to hell? Unless I'm like Habakkuk. I want what I want when I want it, and there's people around me that are hurting me. And if you give me some special power here, you don't. You can limit it. Twenty people that I just had to point my finger and said, you're dead. And they fall over. How long would it take me to use up my 20? Hopefully a long time. Hopefully the very first thought that would come to my mind is, are they saved? Whoops, I can't point because I have to be careful. And what I need to do is lay down my life. The one thing I am noting, and I'm sorry I'm bringing up COVID, but it's what's been dominating our church and it dominates our attendance today is I'm finding people so passionate about COVID. In every way, shape, and form. From what they what they're reading up on, what they're following, the protocol, all of that. And yet I'm struggling to find people that are even close to being that passionate about Christ. I'm finding believers that are totally wrapped up in the idea that I might die. And it's like, aren't you reading your Bible? You're gonna die. Aren't you reading your Bible? Don't you recognize that God is from everlasting? He's Yahweh. He's Elohim. He's the Holy One. He doesn't sin. He doesn't do things wrong. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't twist it to violate what He's promised. What are we trusting in? I'm confused, except for the fact that I've been talking to a couple other pastor friends, and I'm realizing... As people, and they've come here and told us the same thing, they can't find churches that are just going through the Bible verse by verse. Find me a church that's teaching through a back. Why would I do that? That's not what the people want. They want happy, cheerful, entertaining kind of pastors that give them all the positives, all of the good things that are going to come out. And they want them even sometimes to lie to them. And say, you can sit, it's okay. And they start naming their favorite sins. In God, it's the one who is Yahweh, who is Elohim, who is holy. You can't do that. You can't go around telling people it's okay. But the passion is on the physical. The passion is on the temporary. This is what Habakkuk's is struggling with here. God wants our passion on the eternal. I'll try to stop there and leave COVID out of my message. But there's something something missing. And as I talk to friends around the country, they're having trouble finding those churches that are just teaching the word and following God's truth instead of watering it down to make people comfortable. And they used to be the whole issue of seeker friendly and they bring all these unbelievers into the church. And then they couldn't figure out why the church was diluted, why it was following after all these things that people were coming in with. That's not how it works in scripture, folks. Jesus wasn't begging people he wasn't on his knees begging them please come and here I'll I'll get rid of half of the ten commandments will that make you feel better I'll even let you pick tell me which five you don't want to follow and we're good that isn't how it works because it isn't based on the truth it isn't what's best for you and for me so Habakkuk is reminding God of who he is like he needed a reminder he's the holy one separated from sin he is sacred and here he interacts with man. He's trying to appeal to God's higher nature, his character, his morals because he's leading up to what he wants them to do. And he says makes that little statement there with regarding security, we will not die. We is who? Who's the we? All of Judah? That's not true. Who is the we? Who are the we that God promises and protects in scripture? It's the righteous. It's interesting to me, I heard a, a rabbi in, in my few days of watching a number, number of things online. But I saw, I was watching a little bit of news, I saw a rabbi come on, and he decided, he, he reads the, the scriptures, I guess, at their synagogue. So he picked one, and he said, I picked Psalm 15 because it's short. And I went, what? Psalm 15 is all about the righteous." And here he has a variety of people. This is in L.A. with the mayor standing behind him. And uh, somebody from a Jewish, I mean, the, he was a Jewish synagogue, somebody from a Muslim mosque, somebody from a, a, a bunch of them, and they're all taking turns sharing. And this guy gets up, and he reads Psalm 15 on public TV. How many verses is Psalm 15? I believe it's only six. It is short. You go in there and study that psalm, and you realize there's like 15 different characteristics that he's stressing about the righteous. That rabbi had no idea what he was reading. He made no point as telling them what, what it meant. And missed the whole point. Because that's our world today. And that was Judah in the day of Habakkuk. They were not righteous. But when he says here, we will not die, Habakkuk can only be referring to the righteous, including himself as part of that we. And what he's pointing out here, we will not perish as a nation. The covenant promises for the righteous will be provided. And you watch through scripture over and over and over again as Israel disobeys God, violates scripture, gets conquered by, you name them, Egypt, Assyria, Rome, the Greeks, the Babylonians. Wham, 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 wham. You go through the little book of Judges, and it's over and over and over again. What were they learning? It seems like nothing. But there were some righteous people, like Samson. Was he? No. And yet, God uses him as a judge. Samson learned some things, and in the end, I think finally got the message. But he had no eyes, and he dies with 3,000 Philistines. How are we doing today? When it comes to the righteousness of God, how important is that? You find people today telling you that they don't want what you're selling. They don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. There's many ways to God, and on and on it goes. And so you try to witness to them. You try to set an example before them, although it's not going to be perfect. And at times you may need to go to somebody and ask them to forgive you. Because that's what a believer does. It's not you that's going to save them. It's not your perfection that's going to save them, what we just sang this morning. It's Jesus Christ. It's what he did on the cross. It's his death and resurrection that gets presented as the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what changes everything. It can't be that simple. Separated from God forever and ever. And so, how simple do you think he has to make? Jesus has to do it all. It's a free gift. And so as he's interacting here, we will not die, he's kind of hanging on to that. Thou, O Lord, back to Yahweh, the unchangeable I am, has appointed them to judge. I, I know what you're doing, God. I think I understand what's going on here. You have ordained them, you've set them up, you have a purpose behind this for judgment. To, to discipline Judah. I understand that. Then he says, and thou, O rock, kind of figurative of God's solid support and the de- de- defense of his people. He's stable. He's secure. You have established, you've appointed them as this instrument to correct, to rebuke, to reprove. And So as we look here, we realize Habakkuk's already kind of painted the picture about Judah. Go back to chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And he names one thing after another, after another. Guilty, 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 guilty. We don't have a back here trying to defend Judah. Trying to make them like, oh, they're not so bad after all, God. That's not what he's trying to do. But the rock of Judah, the rock of Israel, is the one who's established here. Judah was the bad guy. Violence, iniquity, strife, contention. And so as he sets that up, he tells you who God is, his self-existence and all that's involved. The security that we have because of his promises, he's trustworthy. We can have confidence in him. He gets to verse 13 and he says, basically, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, God. Hello? And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And here he comes. Here's his point. He had to kind of butter him up a little bit to get to it. He says, why are you silent? What are you doing, God? If I were God, you're dead. That's Twice I killed you. I shouldn't point to you two times. You're dead. You're dead. And then when I run out of dead fingers, I've got to come up with some other way. But it worked so well, and those people disappeared out of my life. Then I start taking their lives on my own. I start being God because I think I know better. And this is where he's struggling with the whole thing. He says, God, you should do something about this. You're too pure. You're too ethically sterile, too clean to approve evil, to endure literally with the eye what is ethically wrong. All sin is hateful to, to God. And again, goes on and I found it this week and a couple commentaries looking at him and last week and realizing that people keep saying that God can't look on evil I can't find a verse that says that this is not what that's trying to say if God can't look on evil how does Satan come back and forth in Job 1 and 2 and stand in God's presence and interact with him how does God show up in the Garden of Eden when they just brought sin into the picture? And He's He comes in in there, and He's He's looking for them, and He finds them, and He interacts with them. And then they want to use the phrase when Christ God died on the cross, and it's in some of our songs that God had to turn His face away. Find me a verse that says that Jesus Christ is God. If God can't look on evil, how did Jesus take it on himself? It's it's not correctly being taught. And they'll go to verses like this and they'll try to bring it out. That you're too ethically clean to look at those who are ethically wicked. But he's looking. He says you cannot look on wickedness with favor is what's implied in the Hebrew because that's what's being brought out here. You can't show regard to wickedness. You can't stand to witness it. God does not enjoy it. Do you think he liked it when his son died on the cross? That's not when the celebration came. And his son cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It isn't turn your back on me. But he's having to endure it. I said I wouldn't bring up COVID again, but there are many COVID patients saying that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you get it bad, if you didn't get it bad, you're kind of going, what's the big deal? Don't be lighthearted about it, about anything that anybody's going through, just because you didn't go through. We need to have sympathy and understand, and this is what's going on here. God does not look on wickedness with favor. He does not look with favor, and again, it's implied here, but he doesn't cause himself to endure those who deal treacherously, those who are deceitful, those who are faithless, those who stab you in the back. I've had friends like that. People I thought I could trust. You don't know who people really are until they're put Pressure gets strong enough, and again, again, if you're trying to hide out and you're trying to pretend like I don't want to know what's going on out there, then yes, you're going to be even more surprised. But it's creeping in. It is beginning to take over. It is pushing true believers to the wall. And you're going to have an opportunity just like Peter when they asked if he knew him. Just knew him. No. Then somebody else asks. No. Somebody else asks. No, blankety blank blank blank. I've already told you, I don't know him. And Jesus is right there because he turns and looks at Peter. Don't don't be Peter. Remember what he promised? That's how I feel about sickness that's come into people's lives. I have sympathy. I feel bad for them, and I suffered myself. But I, but I, don't, I don't look at it and say, this is the end. The, the death of my life physically is the beginning. And then when Christ returns and I get that new body to be with him forever and ever, it's the, the opportunities that are ahead of us. I've known that since I was a seven-year-old. God has built it into my life through the Scriptures over and over and over again as I realize what God is trying to, to say to us, what Habakkuk is struggling with here. And he's trying to appeal to God, you can't do this, God, so why are you doing it? And the bottom line is there, when he comes down to it, he says, why are you silent? Why do you withhold your tongue? Why aren't you condemning all of this? When the wicked swallow up, they engulf." destruction, and ruin. They swallow up those who are more righteous than they. The ones who are more just, more innocent. This is Habakkuk trying to appeal to God like God's supposed to say, oh, yeah, that, that's a different idea. We're kind of in a court case here, and Habakkuk's throwing up his, his justification for things, and God goes, "Up, oh, you got me. A change. That's not what's happening problem was the difference between the righteous, which didn't mean they were sinless or perfect in the Old Testament, but they were righteous in God's eyes. They were just, they were innocent because God had taken care of their sin. And those who are unrighteous, who have no relationship with him, have no um, opportunity to become believers, to put their faith in Christ like Abraham. And so he's interacting here and he says, why are you silent when those more righteous, how how righteous was, was Judah? See, Habakkuk shot himself in the foot back in chapter 1, 2 to 4. You just laid out the evidence. You call that righteous? Go look at Psalm 15. And Habakkuk is kind of in trouble here. But he says, but, but, but they're more righteous than the, the Chaldeans. That's, that's what matters, right, God? No! The Chaldeans are on their way to hell. The Chaldeans are just a tool I'm using, and when I'm done with the tool, I'm going to appropriately deal with it. It's you, Judah, it's you, Habakkuk, that I'm really trying to get attention. So this idea of God's authority, appealing to him, he is who he is, and there's no question about it. He is self-existent. He does bring security. But in this case, he's silent, because Habakkuk is not asking the right question. So he goes into this abuse. This is what he really is concerned about. And so he starts challenging again with more questions. Verse 14, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them, like the fish of the sea, helpless, easy prey, defenseless? They're they're dumb. They're unable to speak in their own defense. That's what you've made them like. Because you won't listen to me. And you're obviously not listening to them. They're like creeping things. They're alone, kind of like ants. No leader to protect them. Easily crushed. And specifically without a ruler over them. None to guide or protect. No general with an army. So here's a backing. He's in the court case. He's pulling out all the stops. Trying to throw everything, see what would stick on the wall to get God's attention to him to do the right thing. They're susceptible, God. They are vulnerable. Verse 15. Chaldeans bring them all up with a hook. Now your fishermen start waking up this morning. They catch them with a hook. Secondly, they drag them away with their net. They they sweep them away and they they, they take them up. And then he says, thirdly, they gather them together in their fishing net. He uses net here five times. One, three, and five is the same word. Two and four is a different word. He's trying to bring up this this first net is just something perforated, almost like what you would use. And again, this is me, and it's not a, a good description. But when you're when you're in the boat and you're you're catching, you're, the fish is coming in. Get the net, get the net. That's what they'd be referring to. But when he uses a second term, they gather them together with their fishing net. It's the one you'll see them in a far off, enchanted island take that net in the boat and they throw it out and it spreads and it lands and it traps whatever's in it. And so he's using two different terms here. And he goes back and forth and he says you're collecting them. The uh, third idea. Gathering them together. Collecting them up in the fishing net. And so then he struggles with this whole thing. Therefore they rejoice and they are glad. And I kind of, the more I looked at this I, I think I'm right that the first one's more external and the second one's more internal. They rejoice, they take pleasure in with arrogance. This describes in the book, in Vines father's Spository Dictionary, a spontaneous emotion, this extreme happiness, visibly expressed. It's things like David skipping about, dancing, singing, when you go over to 1 Samuel 18, 6. These people are dancing on the graves of, the, of Judah. They're giddy so arrogant. They're so proud about what they've accomplished. And, and then he says on, and on, on the hand, other hand, they are glad. This is more of an internal exulting with levity. They're just, just, you know that feeling that bubbles up when everything went your way? Maybe when you were a kid and, and it's Christmas and you asked for three things and you got all three of them. And more. Other stuff showed up. Aunts and uncles joined in. Grandma and Grandpa sent money. And so here you are, and I remember watching some kids at, at that level, and you've seen them on TV with they just they do this little dance. Because on the inside they're glad. They're, they're really motivated, exulting, excited to levity on the inside. Did they win the lottery? No, oh, that doesn't matter either. That's temporary. Did they come to know Jesus Christ? You ever seen someone received the gospel, who really recognized they were a sinner, and the true response, you see, you get both of these in them. But this isn't about salvation. This is about the Chaldeans abusing Judah. And it's like God is letting them get away with it. They're so susceptible, God. It's unjust. This isn't the right thing to do. And verse 16 says, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net. This is the first net. This is they offer, they they slaughter. In sacrifice, because their net was so successful. This perforated thing that's somehow catching the fish. And they burn incense to their fishing net. This is more making smoke sacrifices is the word to use. Because through these things, their catch is large. It is successful. Literally fat, rich Robust. And because of these things, their food is plentiful, they're well fed, they're healthy, because they stole everything they could see in sight. You cannot tell them no. So, whatever is at your house, if you mentally said to yourself, This is the most valuable thing in my house as far as earthly treasure, not my family, but as far as things go, they broke in and they took that, and they did the little giddy dance. They took it and they spent it on themselves to make themselves, as he describes here, fat and sassy, healthy as can be with your stuff. And so verse 17, will they therefore empty their net? He's trying to bring on, will they, will they keep on emptying, causing their net to be emptied? It's a hiffle, so they can fill it again and again and again insatiate satiate themselves. There never is enough. That reminds me of the When are we gonna stop looking for the world's sweepstakes? And start looking to God. First Timothy 6 tells you don't do that. Don't waste a nickel, or what is a sweepstakes? A dollar, two dollars. I don't know what they're up to. But 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 I can win. You know where that money's coming from that you're winning? Either you lose, which is one in five million, we're gonna win it. And so there somebody that one person that wins it is taking your And everybody else has money. Or you happen to be the winner. And if you're the winner, watch out. First off, realize you just took everybody else's money. Well, they gambled. And they lost. Yeah, but guess what they're going to do next? Everybody's going to be coming to your door. You can go into, I remember Reader's Digest and many other articles, these people that won lotteries, it destroyed them. And I'm talking about big enough money that everybody wanted to cut become nice, and then they get mean. And then they look for ways to steal it from you. Why do you want to do that? God tells us in First Timothy 6 that we're to be content. Why am I content? Because it's God who I can depend on. Remember the one who is my Lord, my God, my Holy One, who's everlasting, the one who's taking care of us, the one who is my rock. Why am I pursuing the world's temporary goods? and getting so distracted in the process. And so as he wrestles with this whole picture here, he points out in verse 17, therefore they empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing. They are forever killing, moving from Judah to Egypt to Syria to whoever it is without any resistance and without any Hitty. They could care less. I remember one time when, when one of my children was real small and we are at a carnival and we found 50 cents on the ground and it was probably 35 years ago. 50 cents was a lot more money. And I was trying to teach my child, you find something you want to check out. Well, we went to the nearest carnival ride right there and I, I was just teaching her because I'm sure that the guy's not going to, he, he, he wouldn't, Walks up, and I said, and she she tries to explain it to her in her simple language. I found these two quarters right here on the ground, and the guy reached out, snatches them out of her hand, and he goes, oh, they're mine. All he was was a carnival ride guy, you know, whatever the Ferris wheel or one of those things were. And I stood there, and I looked at her first and realized, "Ah, I picked the wrong guy to teach a lesson from. And she stood there kind of shocked. tell you, how well they like you, however they praise you or vote for you or whatever they do. If you get in their way and it's you or them, if it isn't a true believer who's walking by the Spirit, kiss your quarters goodbye. Just take them. Without pity. The guy didn't even flinch. He went back to the riders that were coming on the ride and taking their money too. I learned the lesson, not my child. And so as he's struggling with all of this, the fact of how susceptible Judah was, how successful the Chaldeans were in this abuse, Habakkuk is struggling with God. He goes, I'm one of your prophets. I am bearing this oracle, this burden, this message that I've got to pass on, and you're not listening to me. So he makes a decision in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand on my guard post, and I'll station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what He will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. The, the kind of what's the impression you get from that? I hesitate to ask questions when there's so few people here, but what's the impression of verse one? Well, how's a Habakkuk coming across? Okay, so he's kind of recognizing I'm in, a, I'm in trouble with God. I'm, I'm, he's kind of humbling himself. It's kind of the picture. Until you look at the verse and you realize that isn't what he's doing. When you look at verse 1, the idea of waiting here, he says, I will stand on my guard post. I will stand. I'm going to position myself before God. I'm resting my case. Okay, God, what are you going to do with that? That's more what he's trying to say there. He's trying to bring this out, and it's it's a simple cowl and perfect, and I know you hate me bringing those up, but he says, I, I will stand on my guard post. I my observation station kinda of like kind of like uh, who's the one that went up to the cucumber field? Just came to my mind and I, I should have looked it up. He's kinda of watching. But but you have this whole situation. This Habakkuk in three chapters is kind of what Job is in forty two chapters. you're reading your Bibles and I know you're picking all this stuff up. And so as you're going through there, Job gets really slammed. That's what Habakkuk's struggling with. Look at look at the nation. And then he goes into this middle section, and he kind of starts. He has people, you know, and Job bringing up stuff. But but Habakkuk is smart enough, and he's bringing it himself, bringing it up, giving God all the reasons. And then when you get to the end of Job, starting with verse thirty-eight, where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And he kind of beats the clay of Job down into a little pancake. And Job repents. That's what's going to happen to Habakkuk. But right now, he's not a little pancake. It's kind of like, what are you going to do about it, God? I I will stand on my guard post. I am going to position myself in this observation station. I'm keeping watch. And then he says, and station myself, which is bringing up the idea, I will plant myself firmly. I'm going to hold my ground. Now he's moved to a hit pile to plant himself. It's something he's going to do on the rampart. And you look at it and you go, what is that? And it's basically the, the, um, the watchtower. But, it, but it, when you look it up, he's talking about this besieged city, this mound that's being built up to take over the city. And he's kind of positioning himself and he's going to say, I'm going to watch and see if God will come in and wipe them out. Remember Sennacherib when he went after Hezekiah? One night, 185,000 Assyrians, Assyrians are wiped out by how many angels? One Angel. Yes! That's what we love. Those are the kind of movies we want to watch again. That was fun. Well, that movie's coming when Jesus Christ returns, but when he comes, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People don't believe that today. Oh, he's, he's kind and nice. Love Jesus. Love everybody. You don't understand. He's coming back in judgment. It's real ready? Do you know him personally? Have you received that free gift of eternal life? He died on the cross for you. He took your sins on himself. He didn't cut a deal. Here, you take five sins, I'll take the rest. How well would we have done? We can't do it. We can't atone for our own sins as sinners. Loss. And here he's trying to, to make God, kind of pushing this in God's face. He says, I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart. So he's kind of putting himself up like this little kid that, that thinks he can push God around. He says, I will keep watch as he moves down to the lower part. And he's basically bringing out, and this is a PL. And I, again, I mention these only because they, they don't come out in the English. They don't come out unless you're looking at the Hebrew. He says, I will seriously look forth. It's, it's an intensive form in the Hebrew. He's going to be staring his eyes out to see. What's he want to see? One, what he will speak to me. How is he going to judge and decide and rule? What's his heavenly uh, justification going to be for not fixing this problem? You, you get the arm crossing? God, You cannot. You cannot justify this. I just laid out the case of who you are and what you promised. And yet you are silent. There's something wrong. Are you the God that I really know? Well, prove it to me in chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to watch this PL imperfect. I'm going to be watching to see what you will speak to me. It's another PL imperfect. How you're going to be responding in judgment. How are you going to justify yourself? Two, I will keep watch to see how I may reply. What I will answer in return. My requital is literally what comes up in the Hebrew. In defense of my position. I'm going to keep watch because I'm going to watch what you do. And then I'm going to have appropriate response back. And God goes, oh, I took on the wrong person. Habakkuk is a really good lawyer a solid case. And so he says, I'm going to watch to see how I may reply when I am reproved. When I'm corrected and rebuked, And literally, again, in the Hebrew, it brings out the idea when I'm impeached. Concerning my complaint and my argument. When you try to take it down, God, I'm going to be standing there. We'll fix this problem. We never do that, do we? I've shared many times as a two-year Probably closer to three. But my grandmother telling me what to do. She lived next door in Palo Alto, California. I was digging in her flower bed. My grandmother loved flowers. I still remember all of her flowers that won't grow here. She came out. And she called me Jackie because that's what they all called me. You may not. And she says, Jackie, please stop digging in my flower bed. Right by the window to watch. She says, "Sure enough, I, I let everything go. I got out of her flower bed and went back home. Back in the days when a two or three year old could be out in the front yard in Palo Alto, of all places, right near Stanford. That's Habakkuk in chapter two, verse one. That's where we're leaving him. What are you going to do, God? It's rather clear. You don't have a case." don't rebuke me. Don't think you can come down and make me look bad. You're only going to make yourself look bad. Just fix it. Fix it. Get the Chaldeans out of here. And then you figure out a better way to come in and spank Judah because they need spanking, but not from Count it all joy when we encounter various trials, except for, where are the exceptions? There aren't any. The trials are coming, they're going to keep coming, and the tendency for for many people is to run to man's solutions, and to blame God. We need to accept his only solution. I'm giddy, I want to do a little dance up here, that I was able to preach a message. About what the world's bringing on next. It's going to come. Recognize who God is. You take advantage of a backache. whack, but then they're going to watch you and they're going to test you and they're going to put pressure on you to see if it's real or not. That's why we need to walk by the Spirit. That's why we need to read our Bibles. That's why we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and flee from all of the things that are out there that people think are the answers. Drugs, money, sex. They don't satisfy in case you haven't figured it out. Jesus. That's the answer. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We are excited to know you, to be given an assignment to make disciples, and to realize that we are going to be successful. Maybe not with very many, but that one or two or ten that we can look back on, that you've allowed us to reach, will make all the difference. Father, help us to please you. Help us to obey you. Help us to rejoice no matter what comes.